it's more complicated than that, yeah. you know? And, it's, and I do think a huge, huge part of it is resistance to change. This is Van Collar. My name is Mo Amir, and today on This is Van Color, I'm joined by a powerhouse at the helm of an influential organization that represents the real estate development industry. An alumnus of UBC's political science program and BCIT's journalism program, she is a corporate communications maestro who has previously held positions as the president of the North Vancouver Chamber of Commerce, the director of communications at Port Metro Vancouver, and a reporter for Global TV in Vancouver, while also dedicating her executive time to organizations such as the Jack Webster Foundation, BC's Knowledge Network, Field Hockey Canada, and other community groups. She is all over the media, but she is here for an hour as a favor to her old friend Mo Amir. She is the president and CEO of the Urban Development Institute. She is the powerful Anne McMullen. Anne, how are you? Oh, it's so good to see you, Mo. Thank you so much for having me on when you called. I said, absolutely, I will do this. It's, Mo was an old friend from the our North End Chamber days. So it's it's great. so good to see you. I just realized that coming up this October, we've known each other for 10 years, a whole decade. Wow. Isn't that That's crazy? amazing. That is crazy. Time flies. It does. You haven't aged a day. Oh, no, not at all. <laughs> now, my daughter went from 10 to 18, though, so I don't know how that happened. <laughs> she is aged, <laughs> Or actually, 8 to 18. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I remember you posting photos of her as a very young child on Facebook, and now she's graduated Going off school. to university, yes. Crazy. I know. Well, I appreciate your time, and I appreciate you being here, so let's get right into it. Can you explain to everyone, what is the Urban Development Institute? Well, as you said at the outset, we are an organization that represents the real estate sector. So the residential, commercial, and industrial developers or builders. Mm -hmm. um, we are like a trade association or an advocacy organization. We get involved very much in education, educating our members uh, in communications, both with our membership and to the general public. And we do, uh, the other half of what we do is around policy. So we work with all three levels of government on the development of policy, regulation, zoning, and things like that. So when, whether it's municipal governments or provincial governments are looking to you know, make improvements or uh, things that they want to do uh, that affect the real estate sector, they will consult us mm -hmm. as one of the stakeholders when they're making their decisions. So that's a huge part of what we do. And then a lot of, like a chamber, a lot of networking for our membership. We do a lot of uh, educational events, um, whether it's seminars in the mornings, uh, luncheon speakers, and uh, what we also call School of Development, which is an accredited course. So you're learning about um, really how do you how to develop, how to build. Okay. So that's generally what we do. So not dissimilar to perhaps, uh, well, like a Chamber of Commerce or a mining association or an organization like that. Although what we do do is probably more on the education side than perhaps some of those organizations do. Mm -hmm. I'm a firm believer that in order to understand perspective, you also have to understand objective. And I often hear that UDI lobbies on behalf of real estate developers. And I believe that you yourself are a registered lobbyist. That's right. Is it fair to say that UDI is a lobbyist group whose primary goal is to represent the best interest of its membership? Yes. I mean, part of what we do is lobby. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I, that's a funny word, I suppose. It's work with municipalities, work with the provincial government. Sure. And uh, we don't necessarily lobby per se on certain things, but that's the way the government sets it up. They, if, you, if, you, if anybody 
interacts with government, Mm -hmm. even as an individual, you have to register as a lobbyist. And that's just sort of the the technical term. And it is certainly a part of what we do. Um, And then, as I mentioned, there's a lot of other things that we do. We have about 850 corporate members representing about 220,000 employees and, you know, representing $22 billion in GDP. So it's a huge part of the economy. It's about 20 to 25 percent of the economy. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot more that we do than just, um, you know, lobby. Sure. (laughs) But it's, you know, it's working with and it's, uh, you know, obviously it's whether you call it dialogue or consultation or partnership. um, It's all really around building relationships. Now, you're no stranger to podcasts. You were recently on the Vancouver Real Estate Podcast with Adam and Mike Scalina. Shout out to those guys. I really enjoy their work. And one of the first topics of discussion was about the real estate industry's reputation. And I think one of the brothers noted that he felt that realtors were raked over the coals and hung up in the streets, which I thought was a bit hyperbolic. But I want to ask you, as someone publicly advocating for real estate developers right now, what is the reputation of the real estate industry? I think it's difficult. I mean, the real estate industry is made up of so many different people. It's made up of plumbers and construction workers and drywallers. It's made up of um, builders. It's made up of you know banks, lawyers, accountants. Mm-hmm. Um, it's made up of realtors. And every sector... Um, or every part of the sector perhaps has a better reputation than others. And, you know, I think that there's a number of, of factors. It's We've been in a, in the last five or six, well, and really over the last 30 years, but particularly in the last decade, uh, house prices have become very expensive. It's been very, mm-hmm. very difficult. And, you know, and I recognize when you are trying to buy a home or get into a home or rent a home and you can't, um, you've got, you know, there's a sort of a sense of who do I blame? Do I sure, blame the yeah. foreign buyer? Do I blame the developer? You know, these developers, they're making money and I can't afford to move in. And and so, you know, let's blame the politicians. So you do polling, I mean, politicians, you know, realtors, uh, real estate agents. So everybody gets a bit of a, of a, of a bad reputation. And so, um, you know, when you ask people how, you know, do you like the home that you live in? Do you like the condo that you're in? Do you do you like the building? People go, oh, yes. Oh, yes, absolutely. You know, you're in a Polygon building. Absolutely. Polygon's a great company. <laughs> but I don't like those other guys. So it's a very natural thing to do. <laughs> oh, you can, yeah, we can silence your cell phone there. Thank you. Apologize for that. No, no worries. I thought worries. I went in and they went in and silenced it all. I left it all, no yeah. No problem. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about this last week when I was interviewing Melanie Green from the Star of Vancouver, and we were talking about populism. And the root of populism is this increasing inequality between the haves and the have-nots. And I was thinking about this with regards to the housing crisis. The last 10 years, it has been difficult for renters. It's been difficult for people trying to get into the market. And I think there is a natural proclivity for people when they're struggling in one particular area to go, well, okay, who's making a ton of money right now? And they sort of look at this one sector, whatever that means to them, and they don't like it. That's right. And I think that's a lot of it. And I'm not not saying that's wrong, right or wrong. I think, as you say, the proclivity is kind of human nature. Mm -hmm. You know, I think immigrants come into this country and perhaps they got more money. They have more money than, than someone who's already living here. And there's that sense of, well, you know, that they're pushing me out. They're pushing me out of my job or my home. And, and I and I can understand that feeling to a degree. Um, but I think we also have to recognize that they're also adding value to our community. But I just, you know, I don't want to get too much into the sort of the, 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 um, the psychology of it. Um, but 
uh, I mean, there's there's a that's a big part of it, I think, and and I, sure. I think and it's justified in a way. It's not justified, I don't think, to blame necessarily the developers, but it's justified to feel left out. You know, we did a poll recently where we looked at you know who do you trust, mm-hmm. and when it comes to real estate, well, the political parties. All three are at like minus 30%. <laughs> you know, UDI was actually at plus 11, interesting. Really? Yeah, developers okay. were at about minus 10. Now, it's interesting hmm. that UDI was way ahead. But I think because I speak out a lot, you know, people, a lot of people might know me. I don't know. But that sense of, you know, home builders are good. Mm-hmm. And, you, you know, the UDI, they're good, but not those developers. Well, developers are home builders. Right. So it's a funny thing. And then at the very top, the most trusted are your friends and family. Well, that's, yeah. You trust your friends and your family because that's what well, your family maybe you don't choose, yeah. but you know you're, they're your friends because you trust them, right? And so then, and then up high too were academics and economists because there's that sense of you know they're perhaps independent, and so I think that all kind of makes sense. But what I did find interesting is that you know political parties, all three of them, were all. In provincially, we're all down in the basement, but all together. So <laughs> sure. I don't think anybody trusted the Greens or the Liberals or the NDP any more than than the other. So, you know. Um, I think that that also, you know, when you when you think about people blame developers is is as well when it, when new buildings or home, homes are going into communities, there's a change. And mm-hmm. most, I'd say 99.9% of the time, when people have been complaining or didn't like the construction going on afterwards, it's actually improved the community. But you know, nobody really likes change. And, and that's, that's, again, human nature. So mm-hmm. you're going to come in, you're making an application where well, you're going to blame the developer because the developer's making the application to build this big building in my community that's going to cause noise and, you know, maybe block my view. And then once it's built, things are fine. But so there's, and if there's buildings constantly being built, then there's constant this constant angst. So that's sure. part of it as well, you know. Yeah. And it's hard, you know. And I get that. Can we agree though that the real estate industry as a whole, or realtors or developers, are not a marginalized or persecuted group? But- oh heavens, no, no, no. <laughs> They're not being hung out on the streets. No. Yeah. <laughs> they not might be unpopular, all. but absolutely. Yeah. As of recording. Home prices are coming down, but they're still pretty expensive. Rental vacancies are still extremely low. Where are we headed right now, July 2019, in the real estate market in Metro Vancouver? It's a, you know, I have a prediction, and obviously that's all I've got because sure. I can't. I can't that's why I'm asking this, you. Yes. So when we say prices have come down, so I'll just take a step back. Prices have come down in the very, very high end home. So the eighteen million dollar home is now twelve million. Mm-hmm. The eight million dollar home is perhaps now five million. But the average condominium in very desirable neighborhoods, that prices have not really changed. So the lower Lonsdale condo that was assessed last year at nine hundred, mm-hmm. nine hundred thousand for say about you know nine hundred a thousand square feet or so, is still priced at about eight. Fifty-eight seventy-five. So those have not come off very much at all. In the you know the sort of the two million dollar home, the one to two million, those have come off just a little bit. So there are pockets um, where um, there's a bit more affordability. I shouldn't say affordability, where the prices have come off, but it hasn't mm-hmm. actually increased affordability um, because if you are moving, if you're moving along the continuum, then you're selling your house for less. And, or your condo and trying to move up into a townhome. So that, sure. that, that that gap is still there. So people aren't moving. And at the same time, we're not seeing people in the high-end homes downsizing because they're concerned that the market is still going to come down. Now, where is it going? Um, I think what 
the issue is, and it's again complicated, is there has been enormous amount of restrictions put on real estate, whether it's been taxes or regulation and things like that, um, high in construction costs that have made it now too expensive for builders to build what people can afford. So we have 70% fewer pre-sales on the market today than we did this time last year. We're in what, you know, we're in the starting ending of the second quarter. We have at least 10 to 15,000 homes that would have been started to pre-sale and start to even be built in, in um, on hold. Mm-hmm. We also have of the 18,000 rental homes that were sort of in the pipeline or a dream of, of, of a builder, about 13,000 of those are on hold. At the same time, we're still getting 30 to 35,000 people are going to be moving here. So in this short term, we're not really feeling it, mm-hmm. but like whenever you look at graphs of when it, when governments come in with major intervention, as they have both at the federal level, the provincial level, and at the municipal level, it's almost like the pulling of a slingshot. They're pulling back, pulling back, pulling back, and then bam, so at one point, that pent-up demand takes off. Right. So. If history and, you know, if the economy, worldwide economy stays strong, if the BC economy stays strong and the Canadian economy stays strong, now that those things can change, we will likely see a huge escalation of prices in about 18 months because there will not be the supply. There will not be homes that were on that are on the market. We're already starting to see an uptick in prices in the what we call the resale market, homes, that condominiums that were already occupied. Okay. Because people who may have wanted to buy a, a, a pre-sale, there's nothing out there. There's very, very little out there. So the only thing, so now the competition for those resale condos is getting higher. And at the same time, um, the re- the about depending on the area, but about thirty to forty percent of sort of that the condominium market was was put into the rental market. I mean, I own a condo in Lower Lawnsdale that's in mm-hmm. the rental market. There's a lot of people that do that because rental buildings were not being built over the last thirty years, mm-hmm. and so. People are not so investing in a condominium to rent. So that's even going to make the rental crisis worse because we're not building more homes that people could buy or that people could buy that could then rent out. So I'm very concerned about what's going to look like in 12 to 18 months. You know, we could have, if we're not having, we were already starting, um, we've said this to the provincial government, we're already starting to say, see layoffs in our industry. Mm-hmm. Um, when, you know, we've got development managers being laid off. When the development manager's laid off, then they're not hiring the drywaller, they're not hiring the plumber. So, you know, we kept keep saying this, um, and we're also starting to see projects that are being canceled. So people bought in a pre-sale two or three years ago. Now that with uh, fees and charges and things like that, it's now too expensive for the builder to build, mm-hmm. and they're pulling out and saying you can have your deposit back. So uh, we're very concerned about what things are going to look like over the next, like I said, 12 to 18 months. So it sounds like to me you're saying that by 2021, prices are going to shoot up again if construction continues to lag. That's right. But in the interim, things are going to be pretty stagnant or prices will continue to go down? Well, um, you know, like I said, we're not seeing prices go down very much in mm-hmm. the strata condominium market. In the big high-end homes, uh, you know, some people have said, you know, has West Van, has wet the West Side hit its bottom? It may have. But, you know, again, that doesn't help you and me. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, if somebody is selling their home for... Uh, eight million instead of twelve million. I suppose those people have less money in their pocket to go on trips and buy things, um, but um, you know that doesn't really affect the ninety nine ninety five percent of new home builds are in the condominium. Sure, 
sector market. Right? Yeah. Now, there's a lot of talk about making housing affordable, and that's the big topic in the city and the province. And I want to play devil's advocate for for just a minute and ask you, from your perspective, you're representing developers in the industry. What is the ultimate objective for the industry? Because to me, home starts and sales doesn't necessarily equate to affordability. No, of course not. And I don't think the word affordability is a good word because what's affordable to you might be different to what's affordable to me. If you're sure, a single yeah. person or you've got a family, if there's a family of four, what's affordable to, to, to whom and what are you looking for? Mm-hmm. So we, we really talk about is availability and there really isn't the availability and the diversity of housing types. You know, we just saw the city of Vancouver turn down a rental project in Shaughnessy and some people saying, well, it was too expensive. Well, okay, so the rents would be 3000 or 4000 a month. Yes, that's a lot of money, mm-hmm. but it's a lot cheaper than buying a home in Shaughnessy. So that, what those what those units do or those homes do is it actually creates a diversity of housing types within neighborhoods mm-hmm. rather than creating these enclaves of, well, here's a poor neighborhood, here's a middle-income neighborhood. Here's a, you know, so that's really what we need to be doing is creating housing options a diversity of housing types, and be able to develop and build in more areas of the region. We can only build, now 85%, people don't realize this, 85% of our region is zoned single-family homes. Mm -hmm. And you can't build any more single-family homes on a limited land base. So what you do is you force all the building on 15 to 20%, and what does that do to the price of the land? It skyrockets, right? Sure. So we need to move into other areas. And we did our, you know, we've done a poll, the the city of Vancouver did a poll, and it shows that 70 to 75% of people want to see communities that are more than just single-family homes. They want to see townhomes and even apartments or low-rise, whatever it is. But we can't just, you know, all if you fly over or, you know, go up high on sort of Cypress Bowl or something and look over the city, you'll see it's generally flat, except mm-hmm. the downtown core is absolutely densified. And then you'll see a pocket around Metrotown and a pocket around Coquitlam and perhaps out in Richmond. But generally, we're not building in, 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 in areas where we can, where we can create more housing types, where we can create fourplexes or duplexes in what would normally be a, you know, a, a 50-foot you know, lot in, in, in Vancouver or wherever it is. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think that's what we need to be doing. Um, and uh, and then that creates, like I said, a, a diversity of housing types and avail- a different availability, different price points in different neighborhoods, because it isn't really about, um, I mean, af- affordability. Uh, again, it's a, a, about availability. Are certain areas of, this, of the city always going to be extremely expensive? They will. And so then you think, okay, well, how do you create a mixed community in the city of Vancouver? Well, then you need to have subsidized housing that government is participating in. You need to work with the building community uh, to create incentives so that they can build rental. And but the only way to build rental is also to, to then sell a condo. So it's really, the the, the, the solutions are there. It's just um, a lot of it's political will and a lot of pushback from communities. Sure. Now, when we look at just the <clears throat> finite availability of resources, whether that's land, whether that's capital, labor, we do have to, I would imagine, prioritize what gets built. And that's sort of the job of a municipal government as well. What are the current needs from your perspective in Vancouver's housing markets? Are there certain sectors in that housing spectrum that need more attention than others? Yes, we need more rental. We have not built rental in this 
region for essentially 30 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have aging stock, uh, buildings that were never designed to last. Uh, these you know, sort of between the last 30 and 60 years. So we've got buildings that are 60 and 70 years old that were never designed to last past that. Those have now what become, become actually, I will use the affordable, affordable rental stock. And we need to be building more rental stock. And people say, well, we shouldn't be building that rental because it's not affordable. But that's what we said 30 years ago too when the CMHC came in and built. They said, well, it's too expensive. But unless we build a we call it a continuum. I don't want to use buzzwords, but unless we continue, we continue to build, you will have old stock or brand new stock, and and homes, I should say, rather than stock. And so we need to keep building rentals so that people can move along, and so that if you're in perhaps a lower end um, rental and you can afford a higher end rental, you can move into it. So. This sort of stop and start, whether in any sector of the economy, doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And we need to be building more rental and not just in rental zones, because we've seen in the U.S. and in other areas that can um, create, you know, sort of enclaves of of almost, you know, um, you need to have it mixed in with Mm -hmm. with home ownership and a mix of, of income levels. And the only way to be able to build rental with our high cost of land and high construction costs is to create incentives or take away some of the, you know, fees, charges and regulations. But we've got a zero vacancy rate. And if we're not going to be building more condominiums over the next year or so, um, which 40 percent of those go into the rental pool, it's going to get worse. And, you know, and so. Um, if that's nothing else, you know, the provincial government promised 114,000 units, uh, homes, rental homes over the next 10 years. And they're what, two and a half, how many years are there into their mandate? Two, two and a half years. And what have we got? We've built 500, you know, or something like that. (laughs) Uh, We've got a long way to go. And, you know, I think Kennedy Stewart, the the mayor of the city of Vancouver, understands that and they're trying very hard. Um, but to say we shouldn't build rental because it's not affordable. I mean, we need to build rental that is subsidized, and we also need to build just market rental. And you build more market rental, you'll see in places like Seattle or others, the price will go down. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Seattle was able to build 10,000 units per year over three years, and their vacancy rent from went from zero to 7%. Yeah. And again, layman talking here. Yes. Is it safe to say that outside of basically subsidized or social housing, there's not going to be a new rental construction project that will cater to middle lower incomes. Well, because it just sounded like that's sort of what you're saying. There can be, you know, if you're not, if you're talking in Yale Town or the West End, I mean, we are building through the West End plan that the city of Vancouver, very very clever plan, is that they can. Um, they were built. They're building a twenty percent subsidized rental because they increase the amount of density that the builder gets, so that they can afford to build it. There are ways to do it. Mm-hmm. There's not enough government money to just build quote just social housing. It's got to be in partnership with the building community, and that you can create incentives so that you know whether you give the developer more density, so that then they can afford to build the rental that people can afford. And that's got, the, the MERP program as that's well? That's part of the MERP program. It's also part of the West End plan that okay. was um, approved quite a number of years ago. And that's why there's a lot of rental being built in the West End uh, for that very reason, because it was uh, there's it's incentivized and it's, you know, um, it's successful. Mm-hmm. Now, it seems like the UDI has been focused on reducing fees and taxes for new residential construction since those fees and taxes get passed along to the buyers. A similarly large part of the housing cost equation, which you already mentioned, is land. But there hasn't seemed to be any 
recommendations in terms of how to reduce land costs. So the cynic skeptic in me is thinking, is it just a case where the market's turned and developers have overpaid for land, speculating that you know the, the value is going to continue to go up, and now it's impossible for them to turn a profit on their project, so they're looking to reduce the construction costs? Well, I, you know, we've said this Always, I don't. I think we've constantly talking about the escalating fees and charges. Mm -hmm. And I mean, if you could say you overpay for something, it is a market. I mean, we wouldn't say we overpay because it's the market. We paid the market price. Sure. And then if the costs get too high, we just say we can't build. So, you know, the from our perspective, we will just you know we can either if you want to incentivize us to build rental, then we will or. You sit on that land until the prices go back up, in a sense, um, because you're not going to build for a loss. I mean, anybody who is in business, why would you do that? Um, you're not going to, you know, run your company into the ground and then lay off the thousand people that are employed. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, what we have said around land is is around zoning, and one of the ways to. Uh, well, control or um, even lower the price of land, as I've talked about, is let's zone properly. Let's not do this spot zoning. Let's not only have 15 to 20 percent of the land base that is available to build on. Mm -hmm. Because when you've only got that amount to build on, the price is going to escalate because there's a demand for it. And people know that, you know, if you buy that land and build something and then if people are going to buy it. Um, and so, you know, you can pre-zone. We've talked about pre-zoning these area plans. One of them was the West End plan. Again, I, I speak to is, I mean, they were talking about just the city of Vancouver, but even in Coquitlam or in other areas, they've said specifically, I mean, the, the, the city of North Vancouver did a fantastic job. They said, this is what's going to happen in this, in the Lonsdale quarter. This is what you can build in this two, two blocks over. And then here's what you can build in six blocks over. And then that helps to set the price. But right. if you're not, if it's just like, okay, well, we don't know, well, let's just buy this land. And then I'm going to make a bid to the city. And I'm going to go through a public hearing process and see what I can get mm -hmm. that. So my view is, and our view is, is the municipalities create a speculative market. Mm. They can, um, you can actually, you know, whether it's they're now wanting to use this sort of tool of rental only zoning. And we've said, well, we rental only zoning for the, the provincial is, is a useful tool if it up zones, but don't down zone uh, because then that won't get built. If you take a piece of land that was zoned strata, for instance, and then you create rental only, well, the value goes way down and you've already paid for it, so you're not going to build it. Mm -hmm. um, but if you upzone it, as we say, from, say, uh, duplex to a six-story, but it's rental only, then somebody will buy it knowing, well, I know what I can get for rent. I know what my construction costs are. I know my fees and charges and those sort of things. Sure. Well, then I will pay this. I will pay you that amount for the land. But if I don't know whether I'm going to get a six-story or a 12-story, even a 20-story, the, the, the owner of that land says, well, I'm not selling it to you for X, mm -hmm. I think that you're going to build a 12-story. And I might say to, as the developer, no, no, I'm only going to build a six-story. No, you, I think you can build this 12, so you're not going to buy it from me. So that's what creates a, a speculative land market. And the, and the right. municipalities know that, and that's part of what they, they're trying to do along the Broadway corridor with the uh, um, Broadway plans. They've said that there's going to be a certain fee attached to um, any development. So then if you're going to buy along there, you know what those fees, charges, and things are going to cost. So then mm -hmm. that can temper the price of yeah. the land. When it comes to the 
the public hearing and, and the whole process going through the city for a spot zoning or for spot rezoning, I should say, it's so inefficient. And I think wherever you are in the development or how we should develop, you have to agree that spending 10 hours in a public hearing <laughs> and years for someone who owns land that's trying to develop it is a waste of time. Antiquated. It's a, wa- it's a waste of government's time, it's too. Antiquated. It could be way more efficient doing other things, but that has to change. That has to change. And, and municipalities and t- will tell you it has to change, mm-hmm. but it's got to be a change in the municipal act from the provincial government. Yeah. You know, other municipal, other other district regions around the world do things differently. You know, they're used, the, their use of technology, even, even in municipalities, city staff get out and working with the communities. Whereas what they do is say, all right, you know, make an application, then you're going to have a public hearing and let's see what the public thinks. It's really inefficient, and it's not fair to the communities. It's not fair to the public. It is ridiculous, um, I think, even if you're going to make an investment. And it's antiquated. You stand there, and you line up, and you speak into a microphone. Like, you know, uh, yeah. It's it, it, Like that Granville project was 10 hours for 21 units? Like, it's ten, just not... And, no, and 10 hours, that's short. You try three <laughs> and four days sure, sometimes, yeah. you know, and that's after a two- or three-year process of even trying to get to that stage so you know we're up to you know when i i don't want to take the blame but when i first started at at, uh, the urban development institute you know approval times were sort of two to three years now they are even less now they're at four to six years sometimes just because Mm. of the the owner's nature of and that's holding costs so you know if you're you're saying you bought the land you're sitting on it and and uh all the with its loans and all those things add to the cost so it's it's incredibly inefficient and they get it but mm. let's get into that because you cited the C.D. Howe Institute and you wrote that the estimated cost of a new home or building a new home in Vancouver is $600,000, which seems for me, again, a layman, incredibly high. Can you summarize that $600,000 for me just so I can make sense of so why was it's that, that large? So was that the, the C.D. Howe said it was to actually build a condo unit? Is that what you what was the What was the I number? Believe I, have it, to- I believe it was... The estimated cost of building a new home. So I believe it was a condo unit. Yeah. Well, again, not to get into jargon, but it it's hard and what we call hard and soft costs. Construction costs. This is without land. You're looking at about three hundred to three hundred and fifty dollars a square foot. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that you add, and then you're adding on land costs, and then you're adding on fees and charges. So about twenty five to thirty percent of the of a new home goes into fees, charges, and taxes, about 30%. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, the other cost is the construction cost. So sure. obviously there's drywall and plumbing. And then there's the land cost. And then so and then there's also what we factor in is what we call the holding cost. So if it takes three to four years or five years to have something, even to start construction, you've borrowed the money to buy the land and um, you're paying interest on that money mm-hmm. that you've borrowed. And then you're also having to pay... Uh, not like I said, the fees, charges, taxes, but you know you you pay a lot of money to the municipalities, um, you know, for its approvals and things like that. So that's really what goes into the cost of a home. How much is that holding cost as a percentage? Is are you able to guesstimate? Um, it depends, okay. um, but it could be as high as you know five to ten percent. Okay, interesting. Just in hold. If you think of it, five years and you're borrowing, you know, tens of millions of dollars, and you're paying three or four percent in interest. You know, think of it as your you know your holding cost is three or four percent per year. Mm-hmm. And you also just mentioned that the fees and taxes they're about twenty five to thirty percent of of the cost. The obvious question to me then would be. 
how do you convince government to give up that money that's going into their coffers? Very hard. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's next to impossible. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, you know, we, well, I, I take that. I mean, we did have some success. I think you saw, I don't know if your listeners saw it. I mean, you have to be a bit, maybe a bit of a policy or political wonk to have read it. But in the last couple of days, the provincial government announced how much they'd collected off of the speculation tax mm-hmm. that they brought in a couple of years ago. And um, I think they're only collecting, and it seems like a lot of money to any of us, only about $100 million a year. Um, so what... But so that's not very much in the grand scheme of things in their overall budget. But I'm not necessarily saying that the value or the merits of of the speculation tax are not. But what so what when they brought in the speculation tax, the school tax, Mm -hmm. the increase in the property transfer tax, it was all to target these homes that were over three million dollars or to target people who were living offshore and maybe had a home satellite home. Mm But what we quickly figured out, and within a couple of hours, was that these taxes were also going to apply to any land that was zoned residential that was under construction and not occupied. And that would have account, that would have meant millions and millions of dollars in, you know, charge against the industry, which eventually gets passed on to the consumer, or frankly, things don't get built. And so when we went to the provincial government and said, you brought in all these taxes, they now apply to all the lands that we have that are under construction or are are waiting for approval, and it can take four years to get approval. Mm -hmm. And the response was, we didn't mean that to do that. Well, you did. So to their credit, they rolled back the speculation tax, so that no longer applies to land that is slated for development, if it's zoned um, and is underway, and also the school tax. So they rolled Mm -hmm. that back and said, if there is is land that is under construction or is to be constructed for new homes, um, then it it uh, it won't apply. So I when I say it's impossible to get taxes, it's not impossible. They did understand that that would have meant, you know, I suppose it could have meant hundreds of million dollars into the coffers, but they recognize that that's not the intent and that's not what you should be doing because sure. it's not a vacant home. It's not a speculative home. You know, if you look at a master planned community in River District in uh, the Fraser River, you've got, it's, you know, over 30 years where you can't keep adding a vacancy tax or a speculation tax when it's a phased project. Right? Mm-hmm. So it doesn't make sense. So they understood that. So yes, you can roll things back. And But there's a difference between rolling back a proposed new tax and rolling back an existing tax that you're budget is already dependent on. That's right. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and they actually hadn't really even budgeted that this tax would apply to development land. So that mm-hmm. kind of helped because they hadn't realized that it would have applied. Sure. Um, so, uh, but you know, and I also, I think with this, you know, we work very closely with a lot of the municipalities, obviously, and, and some are, I think, easier to work with than others. And, you know, when we, when they do bring in new initiatives, there there is a consultation with us and there's a recognition. And, and I think with the city of Vancouver, we've seen some, some, change and you know the city of Coquitlam is is great they always say well you know we want to build a great community but if we're going to make things way too difficult uh, and our builders who are the partner to the people that are going to build then we do need to be careful so there is a recognition when you say that's sort of the outset this lobbying but it's really just you know this is what these are the implications or perhaps the unintended consequences and it's also just fees charges and taxes but it's not just that it's these policies Mm -hmm. and so you you know they sound good well there's a tree policy you can't get down to tree which great um, but then you're trying to build a building and there's one tree there and now you've got to have a 20 20 foot setback mm-hmm. and then you've got there's what they call shadowing and it used to be well the building couldn't shadow sort of as of two o'clock well now they've said it's sort of four o'clock so now you've got to change again your building you know they ha- they want certain types of windows because of um, issues around 
heat transfer and emissions of buildings. So, you know, you've got to bring in a certain type of, of window. There's uh, parking restrictions or parking requirements. Sure. You've got to bring in EV parking into your building. You've got to bring in, you know, dog washing, um, more uh, increased uh, bike storage, um, also build daycares. So these are the kind of things that just keep adding on. They all sound good, mm-hmm. but at some point it gets you know, some, you know, how can you continue to pay for it? So, you know, as we get to become a, a sort of a, you know, a more modern city with a higher demands, uh, these things cost money. Mm-hmm. Going back to the, the government and taxes, we've seen a lot of measures on real estate in Vancouver. As you've mentioned, a few empty homes tax, foreign buyers tax, spec tax, a school tax, which is more of a mansion surcharge. And we've also seen the new mortgage stress test from the federal government. Do you believe that the market has already absorbed the full effect of these measures in terms of where we've seen the price correction? Or are they still being digested by the market? I think it's there's st- well I think we've we're seeing a pretty hard stop right now. So our builders are there's a pretty hard stop. So we're not moving forward really on anything except mm-hmm. things that are already sold and in the pipeline. So anything new, there's a stop. So I think most of our members are saying, I'm not moving forward on anything. So when you say, has it absorbed? I think that where there's a pretty hard stop. And so when do we start to move again? And again, as I said at the outset, it, when that pent up demand becomes so strong that we still have um, people moving here every year and, the, and there's not the homes for sale, mm-hmm. either in the pre-sale uh, or in the resale. So, you know, I don't know if you called absorption or a really a hard stop. But yes, there's been a hard stop. And will it? when will it start again? I don't know. But probably 12 to 18 months from now. Okay. Speaking of this hard stop, I want to talk about this uh, Business in Vancouver article that I read recently about how BC's crackdown on money laundering and the money laundering public inquiry would have catastrophic effects specifically affecting luxury goods retailers. So I'm curious if that's the opinion of that sector about the crackdown on money laundering. What are you hearing from developers? Do they feel like is this stop have anything to do with that? Are they worried that a continued crackdown money laundering will negatively affect their business? And I'm asking because so much of the narrative of this whole money laundering crackdown in BC is around Vancouver's real estate market. No, it doesn't have any impact on us. The the res, in the pre-sale market, it is so regulated right from the beginning to the end. Um, there's very little opportunity. And when we presented to the both panels, they they said to us, you know, well, then you know, so where's the problem? Like, well, we don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know I suppose if there's in, you know, whether it's in. Uh, um, renovations or in a new home builds of a, of a, of of, multi, of the mansions that's not our business uh, that's not what we do uh, but in the in the uh, pre-sale market there's it's it's just so regulated every step of the way mm-hmm. that is very very difficult and the only opportunity that you know is if you bought a, um, a pre-sale and then I I, you know, for whatever reason, I want it to. I want to sell it to you now. Where the there's not the money laundering, but could you avoid the taxes, perhaps? Mm-hmm. So we've said that's where you need to make sure. And then we've already done that. You all now. I mean, as a as a developer, you require that somebody registers with you. And now we register it with the government as well. So 
No, I mean, in, it doesn't have any impact um, on, I mean, on on us. <laughs> no, it didn't, and it, and it likely won't. I mean, it hasn't. I mean, money laundering, I suppose, you know, what, what the panel found was it's not so much, well, it's not money laundering in real estate. It's laundered money that comes into Canada. And 80%, they said, of laundered money comes in through the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we all know we have a very, up until recently, we had a very robust illegal marijuana industry sure. and and drug industry. And so was, we still do. We still do. So is there a lot of laundered money through the drug trade in Canada, in Vancouver, that finds its way into Lamborghinis and, and homes? Sure. But mm. if that's not laundering the money in real estate, it's bringing, you know, do we have a, a, a drug issue? Um, yes. And so, you know, whether it's, you know, in the in the Kootenays, uh, where it's an unregulated economy, or in other areas, so that's, you know, are, are people buying things? Yeah, but in terms of the re- the pre-sale market for us, it has no impact. So I just want to clarify something because I think I think this is important, especially based on taking in the news with broad strokes. So you're saying that real estate in Vancouver is not a substantial instrument for laundering money at all. No, and even the panel report said that. It says that money comes into real estate that is laundered. Okay, gotcha. So I think that's a, a, you know, and it went from, what did they say, $500 million to $5 billion, and everybody took the $5 billion number. Mm-hmm. And it could impact to zero to up to 5% of prices, and everybody took the 5% number. You know, it you know, is there, I don't know. I mean, I'm, we're not in this, I'm not, this is an issue for law enforcement. Our, uh, you know, whether it's, I think they identified it in the, um, in, uh, as I said, in the um, renovation market, are people mm-hmm. paying cash? For sure. Um, are people, you know, is there, and I think the sense is too, people think, well, you're coming in from China with a, you know $10 million, that money was laundered in China. Well, it may have been, you mm-hmm. know, Uh but how do we, as a as an industry that's building new condos, you know, we go through what they call FinTrack, which is a you have to register. Um, you can't take a, t- a deposit for a, a pre-sale. It has to be a registered from a Canadian bank. We can't mm-hmm. take we cannot take cash. So like I said, in the re-, re in the pre-sale market, it's next to impossible. Do criminals find a way around anything? I suppose. But in terms of our the checks and balances, and they said that even it wasn't even mentioned in the report that in the that, you know, that there was money laundering in the pre-sale market. But does laundered money find its way into our economy? Yes, of course it does. I, I'm assuming as a layperson, I would assume that that there's a, a certain percentage of criminal activity in our region, just in you know, general. So, and in terms of luxury goods, I don't, I have no, I have no, um, well, I wasn't asking about luxury goods. <laughs> I was just saying that there was that article showing discomfort and worry from that sector. So I yeah, was curious and I about don't your know. sector. I would be interested. I know we're talking about real estate, but I would be interested to know if you went to the, you know, the high end stores, are they, I don't know. Actually, mm-hmm. I have no idea. Are there less Lamborghinis being sold or Rolls Royces <laughs> or Bentleys? I have no idea. So let's talk about foreign buyers, and that's separate from money laundering, but let's talk about them as well. You've said that the narrative is overly simplistic, and I want to get into that a little bit, because on your episode of the Vancouver Real Estate Podcast, you were sitting with developer Robert McDonald, 
And he cited China's capital controls, or I should say their enforced capital controls, as a reason for a slowdown in sales activity in the market. He said that a lot of investor money was being pulled out of Vancouver, which would suggest to me that if capital controls that are being enforced in China affected a slowdown, then they probably affected a rise in activity or perhaps even prices in Vancouver's real estate. And this is a common narrative in Vancouver that people who don't live and work here have fueled the real estate market based, or I should say premised on the idea that local incomes and local housing prices are very disconnected. So I want maybe some clarity from you, or maybe you can try to explain this to me. What has been the role of foreign investors in our local housing market, especially in the context of, you know, a bear trust loophole where a lot of times we don't know who the owner is? There's two things. Um, I think what when Robert McDonald was talking about, uh, certainly in the high end, mm-hmm. uh, now, you know, that the controls of how to get your money out, if you can still get money out of China, if it's making an investment in, in, in a business or a company, that's sort of that personal amount is the, that, that number. Um, so again, I, 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 we need to detr- to um, separate that very, very high-end market from from the average market. Mm-hmm. Because the average market prices have not changed that much. The very, very high-end has. So if you take the average, you know, uh, prices have come down. But again, you're bringing in a $12 million home that's now selling for $8 million, or an $8 million home that's now selling for $6 million. Mm-hmm. So the, the foreign... You know, are people, um, are there's a less buying, there's less buying all over. I mean, there's people in West Van, people, you know, second generation or first, third generation, local people who are living in high-end homes because they bought in the 1960s or 70s, and they're not selling because they're afraid that the market's going to continue to go down, so they don't want to downsize yet. So, you know, the foreign is a, is relatively insignificant. It's about 5%. Now, I suppose if you add, you know, the foreign buyers, you've got this and you've got that, it all kinds of adds up to something. Mm-hmm. But there is a there has been a chill both from the developers or the builders pulling back saying I'm not we're not going forward and for the average person saying, "Well, I don't want to sell because nobody everybody's kind of afraid to buy." So, mm-hmm. you know, I don't, you know, are we seeing less? I mean, the the huge part of it is it's downsizers. It's millennials, people moving out of their parents' home and moving into a market. And immigration, and immigration is thirty to thirty-five thousand people per year, as well as about a hundred thousand temporary students and temporary foreign workers that we don't build for, and they've all got to, you know. So, you know, people say, "Well, the foreigner." Well, you know, the UBC it's full of foreigners. Well, okay. All right. Yeah, there's foreign students there for sure. Um, but we encourage foreign students to in, to go to our universities, mm-hmm. even to go to our high schools, because that brings in money. So, you know, you kind of ha- can't have it both ways. So, um, you know, when we, we know, and even the numbers just came out recently from the B.C. government, that uh, the foreign buyer represents a very, very small percent, you know, anywhere from three to five percent. The speculation tax, you know, what did they collect? You know, uh, uh, I can't remember what the number was, but it's a very small percentage of people. So I suppose, like I said, anything you add everything up, 2% of these people and 2% of those people, and 2%, eventually you get to 100%. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's it, what I think we a lot of people do is, well, they don't speak English. Um, you know, they're different and they've moved here and they must be foreigners. So I think we tend to lump in everybody as foreigners when really the, the real 
what you'd call foreign buyer who is investing, who is buying a second home, who probably spends, you know, I don't know, six months here and wherever, uh, represents about a, a relatively small percentage. Sure. And not that I expect you to be accountable for every real estate person in the city or anything, but certainly this narrative has been driven by people like Bob Rennie or Ian Gillespie or Mark Weens, like people who are outwardly marketing overseas. Because well, Bob when you Rennie, are Bob Rennie's not. Okay. Um, you know, and, and I, Ian Gillespie is a brilliant developer. He's not a member of UDI. But, you know, I they he does build iconic buildings. And mm-hmm. they are marketed to people all over the world. Mm-hmm. And I'm not making excuses for him and nor am I defending him. But the buildings that he's not building to the ninety percent of us. He's building to the one percent. And yes, do we have like the Vancouver house? Is there buildings that are very iconic that he is building? that are extremely expensive, mm-hmm. that he's marketing all over the world. Yes. Now, we could say we shouldn't have Ian Gillespie's, we shouldn't have these buildings, um, but they are extremely expensive and and it is a niche market. There's no doubt. Um, and so when you say Ian Gillespie, does he represent, he represents a very small, I mean, how many Ian Gillespie buildings are there? Um, and so, you know, is he, you know, if you think of a Polygon or Lettingham McAllister, um, Ani, they're building all over the Lower Mainland. They're not building, I mean, they're building great buildings, but it's it's a different. So we we tend to want to say, well, they're all Vancouver House, but they're not. And so does Ian Gillespie market overseas? Yes. Um, and is he building a product that is attractive to wealthy people all over the world? Yes. Are there also units in his buildings that is marketing to what I would call a middle to high income local people? Absolutely. He's mm-hmm. not building low income housing. He's not building mar- housing that's going to, you know, is for a starter family. Not at sure. all. Sure. And my, my point was just to say that you can see how this narrative Absolutely. happens when this is what you see in the news. Uh-huh. And, and people think it represents everything. And yes, that story is accurate, but it doesn't represent 90% of what you're doing. So, you know, and I, I'm not making, like I said, any excuses for it. Um, but there's no doubt that, that when people see that, they get annoyed. And I can understand that. Sure. I want to switch gears here for a second because there's something I saw in the news and an I think I understand what it is, but I'd like you to explain it to me. It's this split classification proposal from the city of Vancouver. And this is specifically with regards to commercial tenants, businesses, as I am to understand. And apparently they are suffering based on property taxes, but there's a new proposal that is out there to help them. Can you explain this to me? I'm going to try and try to keep it as simple as I can. Sure. So it is really a proposal from City Hall, which mm-hmm. was largely, again, advocated by members of UDI as well, to ease the tax burden on small business in the city, to retain small business. Now, I'm not mm-hmm. saying, again, I'm not that we shouldn't have big business or we shouldn't have international chains, but there are a number of small businesses in the city that they are in um, areas of the city, perhaps say on on Denman or Robson or some of the other areas, and they would be in a they'd be on the floor level or the ground level, and there might be one story above them. Mm-hmm. But that area is potentially zoned for condominium or to go higher to build a higher building on top. So what the city does, and the and actually the it's actually the BC assessment does. I shouldn't say the city BC they assess anybody, your home, my home, for its highest and best use. Okay. So even though there's a little, a small store perhaps, or a restaurant in a two-story building, BC Assessment is saying, no, I'm going to assess this entire airspace. Like basically, I'm going to, I'm going to tax the air, the 20 
the equivalent of 20 stories of air. Right. And I'm going to apply that assessment, that value to this two-story building. And that owner of that building is going to pay taxes based on it being a 20-story building, even though it's only a two-story building, because it's perhaps okay. zoned residential. And so what we're saying is, and so then so then the owner of that airspace is um, gets this huge tax burden. So then they go to the owner of the, who's leasing perhaps the 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 retail space and said, mm-hmm. well, I'm going to have to raise your rent in order to pay this tax for this perceived building that's not there. Right. And so what we're saying is you need a split tax so that you can tax what is the um, the retail, a certain tax. And then it, when it gets built, then you can tax. But let's not tax, in a sense, the entire property, um, including the undeveloped airspace is now taxed at a commercial rate. And so commercial rates are about five or six times higher than residential rates. So, you know, it's it's essentially, you know, passing on a huge tax burden for a building that's not there. Right. Does that okay. help? No, it does. So I, I want to, I'll repeat it to you and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong. So you have a two-story building, there's a restaurant on the retail street level and the building or the plot of land is zoned for 20 stories the occupants of the two-story building be it the business and if there's something else on the second level they are paying property taxes as if it was a 20-story yeah but they're paying it at a commercial rate so i'm doing it real simply i'm gonna read this so so soaring property taxes have been blamed for driving many small shops mom and pop restaurants and cafes across the city out of business. That's because under the current approach, property is taxed based on the highest potential value, right. which often assumes airspace above the business is developed to include residential units. So when the additional development potential is zoned for residential units, it's all taxed at the commercial rate, which is about four times the residential rate. So a new property subclass is being proposed that would apply a lower tax rate to development potential in the air above the commercial properties. So you've got this phantom 20 stories. Mm -hmm. It's zoned. I mean, it's, it's commercial, but it's so that's, so they're, they're taxing that phantom 20 stories at the commercial rate because there's, there's only commercial there right now. Okay. And so that's fine. So Commercial businesses, people don't realize this, pay about five times more in property taxes than residential because residents residents vote and they don't want their taxes to go sure. higher. And so what we're saying is don't tax that. Create two classes. Have a commercial rate, which is the two-story, and then the the 20-store of airspace should be residential, which is you know, one fifth of the commercial rate. Mm-hmm. And so then that burden that is not put onto the small commercial site mm-hmm. and then you're not having to pass those huge tax the tax burden on because if you the owner of this phantom space is now having to pay this like i said commercial rate and ha- what do you do but you you have to somehow recoup that and you put that burden onto the tenant because otherwise the tenant um you're essentially paying the tenant to operate rather than them leasing from you because the tax burden is so high. So that's mm-hmm. what we're we're proposing. Okay. That makes so sense? It does. Yeah. So the taxes would still be passed on, but 
they're at a rate that's basically one-fifth of what they were. Yeah. Okay. What jumps out to me in that, and it makes a lot of sense. I, I like that. I, I don't think it's fair that a business is, you know, having to carry that type of tax burden because they're just running their business. It's not that their business has changed or anything like that. I'm curious about how this proposal might lower the holding costs for someone who has a plot of land and maybe they're de- delaying development on it. Well, that can that is a positive so that if you um again, you're paying commercial rates on potentially residential. And mm-hmm. so and if you're doing that say for 4 or 5 years, if you're paying those commercial rates, then that becomes cost prohibitive. So it can actually help um in you know in they're lowering the cost so that then it's 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 easier to build residential now there is some view that it could for existing buildings um you know does it does it then add more you know for rental buildings and things like that so there's always an unintended consequence but you know we went through this so many times and for quite a number of years and think that this is sort of the the most fair way to do it so that mm-hmm. you because in addition, so when our our builders are building, you know, a twenty story building, you want retail on the bottom, and if the yeah. retailers can't afford it, then that does us a disservice because it does it takes away from the vibrancy of a community. You know, you've got whether it's Main Street or some of these other cool areas, commercial or you know, even I mean, look how Robson has changed. It's because people, you know, the small businesses really can't. I mean, everything has changed. I mean, when I was a child, Robson Street was different than it is now, and it will change again. So, sure. but you know, it it does at least allow for. Uh, and I don't know if it's mom and pop, but it's, you know, sort of the, you might call it a local business or a business that is maybe, you know, not as high end and, and not a chain. I mean, chains are able to um, operate because perhaps the chain in one side of the city is making double. So then they can afford to have a sort of a flagship here that's not making as much. So but when you've got this single occupancy and the tax burden gets to be so high, you know, uh, again, you want to ensure a diversity of community. And and, it, and I talked about that earlier. So whether it's availability of housing types or options, it's also availability of retail and and we don't you know we want things to um you know whether it's have a character or culture or eclectic or whatever it is you you want to be able to maintain that what makes part of our the, the fabric of our community mm-hmm. we have to wrap it up and i'm going to ask you one last question because i'm on twitter i'm on the vancouver real estate threads and i just see this constant tug of war between people who don't like development and people who want way more development. And I feel like most of the population is somewhere in the middle where they, they're they not completely against development, but they do want to see the right type. And and I myself would say that I prescribe to something that Celine Robinson has sort of advocated, and, and that's the idea of the right type of development, homes for people, not necessarily for an investor class, and and maybe prioritize towards lower income, middle income. That's great, but it needs to get done. Every time we try to sure. propose it, well, I don't want it in my neighborhood. I mean, there's a five-story, what they call the MERP, the Middle Income Rental Housing in Kitsilano, mm-hmm. and people are com- rallying against it. Yeah. I think, 
and it's, you know, half a block down from a building that's even taller. So we all like to say this, but then when somehow when, when it, you know, push comes to shove, you know, it's people just, you know, don't want it to happen. And I think that you can do things slowly, I mean, but you got to be careful. You know, you can't do things too slowly. I think that's what we have done. We've been too cautious. We have not created enough competition. You know, no, I we need to, another hour, Mo. <laughs> no, fair enough. And I guess to rephrase, I don't, I didn't mean too slowly. I mean, like I said, I think the process at City Hall is completely inefficient. I guess my fear and the fear of most people would be just don't drop towers everywhere. Well, and no. I'm not even saying that that's your objective. No, I'm just saying the, that's the worry. Right. And the only way to do that is to free up more land. Because sure. right now, in order to get the number of people that are moving here every year, and if you're going to put them on 15% of the land base, mm-hmm. how do you do that? You're going to drill down or you're going to drill up? What are you going to do? <laughs> yeah, fair enough. And, and that makes sense. So I uh, I think more people are in the middle. They are. 75, we've done polls, 75% of people believe that communities need to be more than single-family homes, that we need a diversity of housing types, that we need to develop in more areas, that it's not just in the downtown cores, that Mm -hmm. we need to be building more along transit stations, around transit nodes. You know, we would let we... You know, God, well, we need another hour. But you look at the city of Port Moody, <laughs> and they got a billion dollar, you know, line through to out to Coquitlam. Coquitlam embraced it, and they're building a great community, a lot of transit oriented development right around, and then they build out and condos, and then townhomes and build out. You know, the city of Port Moody, they refused to do anything, and they just what walking distance to a transit stop, and it's a five story building. Yeah, and that is just wrong. Sure, you know, and. Uh, so, you know, and again, if we don't uh, free up more of the uh, land that's available, you know, you can't build, um, you know, it's ridiculous to build sort of duplexes around a major transit infrastructure. Mm-hmm. You know, you need to be looking at other areas. And um, like I said, unless you free up more land, we're going to have to build up. So what do you say to the people who say, hey, we have record supply coming online within the next two years. There are people that have to walk away from their pre-sale condos because they're not getting qualified upon completion of the unit. There's a record number of inventory in a lot of municipalities in Metro Vancouver. And they would also say, you know what, if we just banned Airbnb, like why would we have to build so much more? What would you say to sort of that? Well, we're not doing a record build. In fact, we're looking at housing starts to fall off. Um, Again, we've got 10,000 units on hold. But in terms of what was coming on the pipeline, is it Oh, yeah, but that's all pre-sold, don't forget, right? Okay. And then all the stuff that you're seeing being built now, that was sold Mm -hmm. two and three years ago. Okay. Um, And so... Uh, again, when the, with the rental market, we're not building, we haven't built any new rentals. So those, mm-hmm. a lot of those units are going into the rental market um, as people who are investing. Um, you know, we've got I, I'm standing inventory. Um, again, if you lowering prices does not necessarily create, well, it doesn't create better affordability. If, if by lowering prices, things were more affordable, everybody would be buying. Mm-hmm. But that's not how it works because you have less equity, you have less money available. There is the mortgage stress test. There's no doubt that's a huge issue. Our interest rates are still low. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, if we've lowered the prices, then why are not people flocking to buy? Because it's still, uh, you know, again, you've got to either sell something uh, in order to move into something or you're a first time home buyer and the first time home buyer can't pass the mortgage stress test. So, um, you know, we are still in a crisis, there's no doubt. 
Well, I think we should end it off there. Thank you, Mo. How do people learn more about the Urban Development Institute? Oh, well, you I mean, you know, we have a website, we have a Facebook, and, and certainly... Um, this is your chance to plug all oh, that stuff. Oh, yes. Yeah. I, you know... Um, uh, we do a lot of, of work uh, with other groups. I mean, we're very big partners with Landlord BC, who's the rental advocacy group, with the um, n- the not for profit housing Asso- BC not for profit housing association. Great partners of ours because we're all we all want to do the same thing, and we all recognize uh, that more fees, charges, and delays doesn't help any of us. So we all work very closely together. You know, we've all got websites, we've all got Facebook pages. Um, you, know, you can always just call us. Um, you know, I would say come to. You know, we've got great seminars and events um, in the mornings. You know, if you follow our website, We'd, whether it's learning about the new building code or environmental practices. I mean, all those sort of things that we call them sort of the lunch and learn style, but they're in the mornings. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's lots of ways to, you know, to uh, learn about the industry. And like I said, just reach out to other organizations. Like I said, whether it's Landlord BC or BC Not-for-Profit Housing, BC Housing is an incredible source. CMHC is a great source of information. Um, yeah, there's a lot of, there's lots of, uh, I think, you know, do your research, do your homework and, um, and get involved. And, and I would say to people, get involved. You want to bring about change, then, then get involved and, and see really what is happening. Um, and, uh, you know, encourage kind of modest change in your communities. Cause that's the only way it's going it's, it's, to, we're going to progress. Mm-hmm. Well, Anna, I have to say, thank you so much. I appreciate your time and I appreciate your thoughtfulness. It's good to see you. So good to see you, Mo. I'll see you at the Christmas party circuit. Absolutely. Is it that long? Are we already talking about that? Summer's not quite over yet. We're we're past half the year. We could talk about Uh. it. Ladies and gentlemen, one of the most influential voices in Vancouver's real estate industry. She is the president and CEO of the Urban Development Institute. She is Anne McMullen. And I am Mo Amir telling you that in the city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace.